Welcome to the St. Patrick Catholic Community Podcast in Scottsdale, Arizona. Good evening, everybody. Good evening to you all. Welcome to you. The topic tonight is the art of forgiveness. I presume you're all here to take notes for your neighbors that... uh, (laughs) Matthew 18, verse 22. Peter asks Jesus, Master, how often do I need to forgive my brother or sister? Up to seven times? And Jesus says, No, Peter, not seven times. Seventy times, seven times. Which is code for infinitely. It's at the heart of Jesus' teaching and has to be at our heart of discipleship as well. You know, some time back I was was in Fiji working with the Pacific Regional Seminary. And this little seminarian, he was an archdiocesan of, archdiocese of Fiji seminarian, poor as a church mouse. He had no shoes and, you know, had very thin clothing. And in the middle of whatever we were doing, he raised his hand and he said, Father, have you been happy as a diocesan priest? You know, it wasn't even masked. What he was asking was, do I have a shot at being happy? I go through with this. And I gave him the most honest, spontaneous answer I could give him. And I said to him, you know, I've known happiness as a priest that I didn't even know was possible to a human being. I've also known sadness as a priest that I didn't know was possible to a human being. And afterwards, uh, I, I was thinking about what I said to him And I wondered whether I would change my answer to him. And I wouldn't. I would give him the same answer today. But my thinking about it led me to identify that the happiest moments and the saddest moments both had to do with reconciliation. Either experiencing coming together, wholeness, the healing taking place in some some regard, not just the sacrament. And the saddest time was the failure of reconciliation, where human relationships were torn asunder and every effort was for naught, that it didn't fix it. Reconciliation, central to this enterprise of following after Jesus. And one of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life is really accepting that God can forgive me. It's pretty easy to accept that God can forgive you. But can God forgive me? That come to that reality that God's love and mercy is greater than my darkness, no matter what that darkness is. And once one comes to that awareness, that God's gracious mercy is so great that God can forgive me. Perhaps it gives some nudge for me to be able to forgive myself. That's an important part of forgiveness as well, 
is learning to be able to forgive oneself and let God do the healing and the restoring and the, re the renewing. There's great uniqueness in Jesus' teaching. In fact, very quickly, there are four things that set Jesus apart from any rabbi that preceded him. No rabbi taught these four things that Jesus taught. The first one was, the law will not save you. We talked about that last night. Righteousness doesn't come from observance. Righteousness comes from God's mercy. And Jesus was teaching, what will save you is accepting that he's the one sent from the Father. Secondly, Jesus taught that we had to have a personal relationship with him. No rabbi ever taught that. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That personal relationship with Christ is exercised in its fullest way in the community, that we're not in private practice, in the koinonia, in that uh, assembly that has purpose and is worthy of example, the holiness of the community engaged in proclamation of the kingdom, that personal relationship with Christ that takes place in that process through our prayer, through our celebration of the sacraments and the ministry of the church, especially outreach. Thirdly, Jesus taught inclusivity in a way no rabbi ever had. There is no one not welcome to the kingdom of God proclaimed by Jesus Christ. No one. All are welcome. And fourth, no rabbi had ever taught this, love without limit, mercy without measure. No rabbi had ever taught that. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Pray for those who columnize you. Endless forgiveness. No rabbi taught that. Prior to Jesus, the eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. Extraordinary. Mercy's really at the heart of what Jesus was really all about. And in fact, every single thing we do in the church is connected to Jesus' reconciling ministry. Everything we do all the meetings that take place, all the ministries that take place, and certainly all the sacraments that we celebrate in our church are hinged on Jesus' reconciling ministry in the koinonia, in the community. Baptism and confirmation bring forgiveness. Eucharist is given to us, as Jesus said, for the forgiveness of sins. The sacrament of reconciliation is an encounter with the risen Christ forgiving us. The sacrament of the sick, the sacrament of the anointing, in addition to celebrating Christ's healing power, brings absolution with it. That's why only a bishop or a priest in our church gives that sacrament. It's a reconciling sacrament. 
matrimony and holy orders are given for the building up of the unity of the community, which is about reconciliation. So forgiveness is very much part of the air that we breathe as followers of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as any evil or sin that doesn't need forgiveness. You know, I, none of us will, re, will ever forget where we were on 9-11. I was in the middle of a, had just started actually, a retreat for the priests of the Diocese of Marquette, Michigan. When those towers came down, there were 40 priests there. We went through the same thing all of you did. And what surprised me was, I thought, well, this is the end of this retreat. It wasn't. None of them left, which surprised me. None of them left. But what we did for the rest of that week, because all of us had that, had that immediate sense of outrage and anger, you know, and that, that immediate orthosympathetic dominance wanting to have revenge. We knew that was not Jesus' way. And we spent the rest of the week helping each other prepare for the gathering of the congregations of the parishes. We helped each other craft homilies for that Sunday upcoming. And by the end of the week, a number of the guys said this out loud. I suspect we all did notice it, that there was a real transformation that took place within us. Not accommodation, but a real transformation because we had spent the week together talking about Jesus' call that has no limit to it for forgiveness. The great magnanimity and generosity of spirit that helped other people who were wronged walk that path of reconciliation can give great encouragement to the whole community. You know, Gandhi's great uh, 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 statement about the eye for the eye makes the whole world blind. But, you know, Nelson Mandela, you know, after 28 years in prison, to, to welcome up to the presidential dais his jailer. What a symbol that was for the whole country. What an, what an amazing and magnanimous uh, gesture on President Mandela's part. Extraordinary. Do you know, um, I was at a uh, psycho psychology convention and I was listening to a number of papers being delivered on the topic of rumination. There's a there's considerable body of research on rumination. You know what I mean by that, right? Going over and over and over something, like a hurt that happened in your life, a slight that took place, uh, a betrayal, a firing, uh, any kind of unjust treatment that you experienced. You know, the tendency to keep thinking about it and going back to it and over and over again. And as I was listening to these psychologists present their research, empirical research, it's like slow learner, it dawned on me, say, son of a gun, 
that's, that's a major obstacle to forgiveness for people. Rumination is an enemy of forgiveness. You just keep spinning your wheels in the same sand. You just keep stoking those fires of anger in the same process. And it always comes out the same, doesn't it? It always comes out that you were wronged in some way or perceived that you were wronged in some way. Rumination is an enemy of forgiveness. And early on in the process, when you catch yourself with uh, rumination, that's the time to interject and to stop it. Just put up a stop sign that says, stop, not helpful. That's not useful. You can't even grow mushrooms in it. There's no, no goodness in that. I'll never forget. I was on the East Coast doing a priest's retreat. And this priest came to talk to me, and he was angry. He was angry at his bishop. You know, carotid arteries were popping out of his shirt. He just felt so wronged by his bishop, who he moved him from pastor of parish A to parish B while the guy was in the hospital. You know, he didn't feel that that was real collegial. So he's t I saw him. I'm trying to help him, right? I'm a shoemaker. I'm trying to fix the shoes here. So I said to him, well, where does it stand? What's the, what's the last thing you said to your bishop? And he said, geez, I don't remember. So you don't remember? No, he said he's been dead for 20 years. I said, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Time to let it go, brother. That's, that, he's the king of rumination, you know I mean? It's like, but people will, people will do that, right? Devote all kinds of energy into going over and over and over again something that was really hurtful or harmful to them. I've often thought, I've got a lot of questions for God. A lot of them have to do with physiology. And in terms of rumination, here's one I would ask. What a beautiful immune system we have. You get stung by a bee, boy, that, you know, that puffs up. There's a redness there, and then it gets sealed off. And immediately that intruder comes and nails your body. Certain white cells you have, called phagocytes, immediately rush to the site of the injury, seal it off, and then surrender their own life, consuming that invader so that it doesn't systemically cause you major problem. You know, you ought to take your phagocytes to dinner sometime. <laughs> you know, these are great little cells that look out for you. You don't even have to send them Valentine's cards or anything. I want to ask God, how come we couldn't have had mental phagocytes? <laughs> rush right in and say, stop thinking like that. That's nuts. It's not going to help you. But I guess God gave us a brain that would help us do that. That we stop ourselves from that endless rumination because there's no forgiveness that can come out of rumination. What comes out of that is a more articulate sense of how angry you are and how upset you are for having been wronged. Well, let me talk a little bit about forgiveness of others. 
And I really want to just start by saying this. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness at root means choosing to give away anger and the behaviors associated with it. And the behaviors associated with anger are retribution and revenge. Even if it goes no farther than your ruminating thoughts. Forgiveness is choosing to give away anger. Retribution means payback. Revenge means getting even. And those are uh, obstacles, those are uh, products of rumination that will never allow you to get to forgiveness. It's forgoing the impulse for revenge. And what that does is strengthen you to absorb some kind of insult without being poisoned by it. You've heard that forever, that the failure to forgive holds you prisoner. That's the first thing about forgiveness. It, it's a choice that you begin to make. Let me talk about what forgiveness is not. And I want to mention five things about what forgiveness is not. First of all, forgiveness is not saying whatever the harm was, it doesn't matter. Or it's all right. That's not what forgiveness is. Just take the example of infidelity in marriage. It clearly does matter. And it's clearly not all right. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay, it doesn't matter. Nah, that's not what forgiveness is. Likewise, secondly, forgiveness is not endorsement or agreement. You know, like, and that sometimes holds people back from forgiving because they think, well, if I forgive, well, then that means I'm, I'm complicit, that somehow I agree with whatever this hurt was that uh, I'm, I'm upset by. You know, I may wish with all my heart that you didn't hurt me or our family, whatever it was. I may wish that with all my heart, but I will refuse to condemn you. Why? Because it poisons my spirituality. That's a step in forgiveness. And for please, forever, don't look at a hurt that someone does to you or something that needs to be forgiven by you as a cross that God has sent you. God is not in the cross-dealing business. When something bad happens to us or something awful happens to us, it's not a cross God has sent to you. Stuff happens, and stuff often happens because one human being is treating another human being disrespectfully, and that's where the, the, uh, the vector goes. It doesn't go to God. It's not like God's passing out a lot of flu virus this year. Here's a flu virus for you. Here's HIV for you. Sorry. <laughs> that's not the God of Jesus. God is the God of life and the God of love. God is clearly on our side for wholeness, for joy, and for uh, integrity. No one wants your integrity more than the God who gave you life. So it's not a cross. 
You know, I, I'm aware of a case in which <clears throat> a retired couple in their 70s, the husband in that marriage managed the money in the family. And for whatever reasons, his wife just never got informed about what their finances were or where their money was or how it's invested or any of those things. She just didn't. In an effort to increase their funds, he decided to get involved in options trading. If any of you know anything about the market, that's the riskiest place to be. And you're up against people who study this all day long, who've been doing it for years, who have algorithms that you can't even begin to imagine to begin to give themselves an edge. And as a little uneducated lay person diving into that market, you can bet how this, how this came out. He lost it all. He lost all of their retirement funds. Extraordinary thing that his wife, who was equally impacted by what he did, he did, she refused to let that hurt poison her life. Took a few breaths and said, they're in their 70s, we need to get jobs. We need to get jobs. She moved right into a problem-solving mode. He said, I'm sorry, honey, I'm sorry, honey, I'm sorry, honey. She wasn't there to forgive him at this moment, but she didn't get poisoned by it. It's a tough story. I, by the way, I don't make anything up. You know, you, you live long enough, you experience a lot of stuff, right? So forgiveness isn't endorsement or agreement. Thirdly, forgiveness is not weakness. Sometimes that's an obstacle for folks when they've been harmed in some way or perceive that they've been harmed. You know, like to, that to move into a positive mode might be perceived as weakness or that you can step on me again. In fact, <clears throat> excuse me, the, it's the opposite of weakness. What that does is to suggest that you are in charge of deciding how you respond. Quick anecdote illustrates what I mean. This happened a number of years ago. I was on the East Coast, and I was working in a convent for three or four days doing workshops. And <clears throat> there was a sister in that convent. She was about my age. And she was as rude as I've ever experienced. And I teach. I, I've been to the mother source of all rudeness as a teacher. <clears throat> she would do things like, uh, uh, like obviously have disdain all over her face no matter what I said. Um, she, uh, she had her tray at lunch and she came over to the table where I was sitting. She came over and looked me in the eye picked up her tray and then went to another. You know. you know, even if you're not real swift, you'd pick that one up. She closed off a group in the hallway between sessions 
so that I couldn't, you know, join the group. I came out to say Mass one morning. She expected the regular chaplain, and she saw me, got up, and just stormed out of the chapel. <clears throat> well, you know, this went on for a couple of days, and I remember at the end of the first day, I'm thinking, what the heck did I say that offended her? What did I do that offended her? And the next day, the same stuff went on. And I kept I scratching my head and saying, Lord, help me see. Am, am, I, am I blind to what's taking place here? By the third day, I'm in the shower, and I'm thinking, lady, don't screw with me. I make a living with a microphone, you know? You really don't want to go down that trail. And I'm thinking of all the things I could say to her, you know? You know, I'm celebrating Mass today if you want to go worm your dog or something, you know? So, so. Thank you for your kindness to me. I'll be as kind to you if you ever come to Oregon. Be delighted, you know. I'm on a roll, you know. And then, boom, it says, I'm saying to myself, I'm still in the shower and I'm saying to myself, what are you doing here? What are you doing? I'm in charge of how I treat people. She isn't. I had wholesale surrendered to her without her having any idea of it, authority over how I treat people. The last thing in the world I would want to do is what she was doing to me. And yet here I was, right? Revenge. Get back. And get back with three pointers, you know? <laughs> Forgiveness is not weakness. The challenge then becomes, how do I respect and reverence her without reinforcing her rudeness? That was a greater challenge. Forgiveness is not weakness. Fourth, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. You may still have that, that pit in the gut feeling when you see someone who harmed you or you hear her or his name. You may still have that visceral response, but you can still choose you can still decide to take a posture of forgiveness simply because it makes the most sense to you. And it's Jesus' way. It's not a feeling. It's not an affective circumstance, even though there's a visceral affective component to it. Forgiveness is a cognition. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a decision that you make. Likewise, forgiveness is not automatic. It's not automatic. There's a step-by-step -step process. I'll say a bit more about that in a moment, but let me give you an example. Again, true, true story. Some years back, <clears throat> a young man in this, coming toward the last semester of his third year in law school was studying, studying for his finals. And uh, he was ahead of where he thought he would be. And it was a long weekend. His fiance lived 50 miles south of where he was going to law school. And he decided to surprise her and go down for the weekend. And he had a key to her apartment. Went in the apartment, 
and he found her in bed with another man. Just, this is a fiancé. This crushed him. And he's hurt and he's angry and he responds to that anger. They're in bed. The guy gets out of the bed, goes to his pants, takes a revolver and kills him. Only child of his mother. Not like it would be better if, well, you got a couple extra, you know. <laughs> his mother became absolutely obsessed with the murderer. He was caught right away. She went to the trial every day. She positioned herself so that on the odd chance he might glance that she could give him the evil eye, the hatred that she felt within herself. He was sentenced to a very long prison term. She joined the prison auxiliary, you know, that did supportive stuff for the the employees and the guards and so forth. And she did so precisely to learn who the pathological guards were. You know, the ones who were torturers and the ones who were um, mean to the prisoners. And she'd bring them cookies and bring them, you know, gifts. She got the roster about, you know, who was, who's working what cell block and just reveled in imaging these mean guards uh, giving a bad time to this murderer. She lost her husband because of this obsession. She lost all of her friends. Many of them were very supportive in the beginning. My goodness, their hearts went out to her. You know, a mother losing her only child. Uh, but they got so tired of the vitriol and the constant, you know, spewing of hatred about this. They just didn't answer the phone. They didn't respond to the emails. She was about to lose her second husband. That's when I started to talk to her. And after I got a clean picture of what was taking place, I said to her one day, I said, boy, that guy really threw a grenade in your life, didn't he? She said, a grenade for sure. I said, he probably couldn't have hurt you any worse than by killing your son. Yeah. I said, probably if you had had a choice, you'd have rather had him shoot you than your son. Yeah. You know, it's like, boy, you're the dumbest psychologist I've ever talked to. <laughs> And I said to her, with all that damage and all the collateral damage that's taken place, loss of your husband, loss of your friends, I guess my question to you is this. Why do you continue wholesale to provide power to him over your life? If you think he hurt you before, he's compounding the hurt caused in your life. And it's your choice that's like making it take place. 
And like the light went on for her, like bingo. That makes me even madder. <laughs> I said, good. Let's, let's talk about some ways to take that power back, like shares off the market. Let's take those power shares back so that you're back in control of your life. She said, how do I do that? I said, when does he come into your mind? She said, waking hours. That's when he comes into my mind. I said, you're scrubbing the kitchen floor. You're mopping your kitchen floor. You think of him then? She said, yep. I said, here's what happens the next time you're mopping the floor and he comes into your mind. You picture him at the door and you click the door closed, not slam it. You're not welcome here. And you close the door. And you immediately shift your thoughts. And I rehearsed with her a whole scenario, a variety of scenarios, about positive, relaxing images and thoughts and self-statements that she could make. Are you following what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying to him, you got to forgive him. You're a Christian. you got to forgive him. No, no, no. We'll get there, hopefully, by God's grace. But you got to start step by step. You got to take those steps back of power. Am I making sense here? This is a huge, uh, a huge part of forgiveness. What's overwhelmingly difficult for most folks is to think Jesus tells me I have to forgive and the harm is fresh in your life. You got to take the first step toward that or you'll be defeated because you'll say words that you didn't really mean. You start with coaching yourself. You start with decisions that you make. Is this wise for me to do? Is this a smart thing for me to do? Grudges are not smart. Grudges are like operating off your battery, not your alternator. Grudges just drain you. They just take away energy that's available for loving service. Energy that's available for celebrating, you know, the first steps of your grandchild, whatever it may be. It's a, it's a decision, step by step. I remember one of my nephews, who's a lawyer now, he went to the dark side. <laughs> uh, when he was a first-year undergraduate, he was taking a calculus class. I had to take calculus, too. And I went to the registrar and said, I don't want to do, I don't want to be an engineer, I want to be a priest. It'll make you a better priest. <laughs> they lied. <laughs> anyway, he's taking this calculus class and not doing well. And the class was being taught by a, a foreign-born graduate student who held office hours at like three in the morning or something, you know. And he's saying, I say, whoa, what are you doing? He says, she's an idiot. She, she's horrible. I mean, she's not clear. The heck with calculus. And I said, really? I said, what other decisions in your life is she making for you? What? I said, just because you see her this way, you have now given her power over your curriculum. Whoa, you know, click, the light goes on. Get a tutor. I'll buy it for you. I'll buy the time for you. Get a tutor. Solve the problem another way. If you just pour your energy into having a grudge against somebody, it just drains your positive energy. It's step by step. 
You know, it can even begin with, and let's talk about some of those steps. We're already talking about steps, but more specifically, you know, I, I think what's helpful is the first step in forgiveness is I want to do Jesus' way. I want to live by his lights. And clearly, Matthew 18, 22, 70 times 7, forgiveness has got to show up here in the process for a follower of Jesus. I want to do Jesus' way and then follow it with, I'm doing the very best that I can right now. I'm taking the first positive step that I can. And maybe someday I will be able to fully forgive. But my first step is to reinforce my desire and my choice to follow after Jesus' way. I remember one woman uh, whose husband left her for another woman said to me, we were talking about steps toward forgiveness, and she said, okay, Father, do these count as steps? She says, my first step was this. I hope she hates sex, <laughs> and I hope he dies of a stroke. I said, well, maybe you're in the parking lot. I wouldn't say that's the first step in the house of forgiveness. She said, but, you know, but I moved past that. She said, she said I, 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 I took this position. She said, I really choose not to be concerned whether he's happy or not. That's a big step for her. I really choose not to be concerned whether he's happy or not happy. You know, remember the revenge component would want him definitely to be unhappy. And she said, I'm, I'm, at, I'm at the point, she said, where I wish him well, and I hope he's able to make better choices for people in his life going forward, but I'm moving on with mine. Bingo. That's forgiveness. It's not saying it doesn't matter. It darn sure did matter. Doesn't mean it's okay. It's not okay. But she took care of her own heart, kept it on the path, Jesus' way, and came to that point. Forgiveness is the choice to give up wishing to punish or get even. Giving that up. You wouldn't drink Drano, and you wouldn't engage in something that's going to destroy your own relationship with God. There's a key distinction between accountability and punishment. There's a key distinction between accountability and punishment. Let me give you an example, a personal example. A few years ago, I'd seen a woman in counseling for quite a while. When we finished the counseling, she morphed into stalking me. She was showing up wherever I gave a talk. She was uh, calling the parish to find out what the mass schedule was. You know, who's saying what mass, which is craziness. Uh, she was on my phone. She was on the internet. And I told her, I said, this stops. And she said, uh, well, you know, I, I, I just want to be able to spend time with you. I said, been there, done that. We finished our work. This stops. No more emails. No more phone calls. And she said, can we just start over fresh again? I said, no. Done. You need a priest, you're dying, I'll anoint you. Other than that, I'm off the grid for you. 
And she said, I thought you were a good priest. Aren't you supposed to forgive? I said, I do forgive you. But there are, there are um, coincidences that take place. Uh, that's not my word. That's not the one I'm looking for. There are consequences, thank you, that take place because of our choices. And the consequence for you is you're done with me. We're done. And that's maintained to this day. Does that make sense to you? That's not the antithesis of forgiveness. I do forgive her. But the consequence is, here's what takes place here. That's what accountability means. You can do forgiveness and still require accountability. Be very wary of forgiving behavior that does not change, like abuse or domestic violence. That's not behavior to be forgiven, not while you're in it. That's behavior that needs to end. Forgiveness and justice are compatible. Let me say that again. Forgiveness and justice are compatible. You don't want to get caught up in that confusion that, oh, I have to forgive. Well, abusive, violent behavior, disrespectful behavior is taking place. Absolutely not. Forgiveness is a choice, as we've said, and it's a wise choice, not just theologically. It's, it's not just a wise choice because that's what Jesus asks of us. Forgiveness is a really wise choice psychologically. We've got a ton of empirical studies on this. Forgiveness is correlationally linked with well-being, the measures of well-being in life. You know, like when somebody says, how are you doing? Good. You know, like life's going well, doing well. Forgiveness correlates with well-being. Likewise, forgiveness correlates with a decrease in measures of depression, which makes a lot of sense. When you think about rumination, and I've given you a few examples of serious rumination, when you think about rumination, boy, that's a, that's a kissing cousin of depression. That's a major cause and effect for depression. Rumination keeps you stuck. Forgiveness liberates you and reduces experiences of depression. It's also, forgiveness is also an essential ingredient for maintaining personal friendships, romantic relationships, marriage, parenting. You think, think it through, you can't do any of those four things well without tools for forgiveness. Have you ever known someone, I've clinically encountered this, have you ever known someone who has, not, not just friends for a time, I think all of us would say that in our lives. You know, folks that were friends when you went to school, you know, and then you scatter to the winds. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're still in the same circle, but friends for a time and then boom, they end. You ever known people like that? 
you may have been a recipient of bye bye When I've looked at the cases that I've encountered in that, what's very interesting to me is there was an absence of the ability to forgive. It's almost like you're going to be swell and we're going to be good friends as long as you don't screw up, then we're done, and walk away. And you wonder, what, you know, what, what did you do? All you did was be a human being. Do so you need the tools of forgiveness to be in those relationships? Compassion and empathy. Compassion and empathy both play a huge role in shaping behavior toward forgiveness. Learning the skills of compassion. And if you haven't been remarkably compassionate in your life, you can learn the skills to do that. You know, gee, you watch the evening news here in Phoenix, or anywhere else, but we're in Phoenix area. You watch the evening news in Phoenix, you see a lot of opportunities every night that you could put yourself in the place of that family whose house burned down or the person who was, you know, had radon gas in the house and didn't know, my gosh, what must that be like now? Or, the, or a child kidnapped, you know, rather than say, oh, that's too bad, a, get to the scores. You know, to stop that and put yourself in the place of those people and say, what would that be like? What, they, what must they be going through? My goodness, look, look what happened in Houston. Just whole huge neighborhoods people had everything they had wiped out gone many of those folks were not covered by insurance you know what must that be like what must it be like to grow up in an orphanage what must that be like you know you attach and then it gets broken in other words what i'm saying is to develop compassion and one of the best tests I know about whether you have compassion or not is when you hear uh, of a great success of one of your neighbors, you know, some wonderful thing that's happened, you know, for your neighbors, if your very first response in your heart of hearts is, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, as, as opposed to, why didn't that happen to me? If your first response isn't immediately, God bless you, immediately a sense of congratulations, of good, good for them, I would question your quotient of compassion. It's not just being able to uh, suffer with somebody's having a difficulty. It also, compassio, in Latin means to have passion with, to feel with, not just suffer with. So unless you're able to celebrate the successes of your neighbors, um, a little more work on the compassion. Empathy, very similar. Best definition I ever heard of empathy was from a great American psychologist named Carl Rogers, uh, whom I had the privilege to meet before he died. Incredible gentleman. Roger said this well. He said, empathy is wearing another person's shoes without forgetting for a second their
they're not your shoes. Like that you stay focused on the other and what's going on for the other. When I'm here in the summers uh, covering Father Eric and I go to the hospital, uh, I routinely hear compliments both from the staff and from patients about our caregivers. You know, the, the folks that go and visit the hospital and how kind they are. They're empathetic. That's what they're describing. They're gracious. They care. They put themselves in their circumstance without forgetting that they're not in their circumstance. Three final thoughts. Forgiveness helps us be the best version of ourselves we can be. Truly, forgiveness puts us in that spot where we're doing the best we can be. Secondly, every effort that we make, even the steps, you know, sweeping the floor and closing the door, every step that we make unites us more deeply in the heart of Jesus. Who is the one who, he said, learn from me. Learn from me. He's the one who taught us 70 times 7. So every, every effort is good news. Every effort counts toward coming closer to the heart of Christ. And the other thing I would encourage you to do is to identify some forgiveness heroes in your own life, in your own experience. We all have them. We all know of folks who have forgiven in difficult circumstances. You know, to, to celebrate that and to learn from that. And, and what it does, you know, the tide rise, raises all boats. You know, when you're thinking in terms of other folks who are good at forgiveness, there's a nudge there to help you be a little better at it too. Let me give you an example. And I've shared this at this parish in the past, but you've heard all the parables before too, haven't you? <laughs> Some years ago, I was... Uh, down in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, doing some work with the clergy of the diocese of Archdiocese of Halifax. The archbishop at the time was a man named Jim Hayes, who was a great guy. And after a, a day-long session, Jim and I were going over the day and looking at planning for the next day. And we're just shooting the breeze. And then he says to me, like it just dawned on him, he says, Ray, do you know Sister Katie O'Toole? I said, no. He says, she's a sister of charity of Halifax. They run a university up on the hill. And he said, uh, she's a good friend of mine. He said, I think, I think you should meet her. He said, you have a lot in common. You know, you're a therapist, she's a therapist. You like to laugh, she loves to laugh. You're mentally ill, she's mentally ill. <laughs> I think you should meet Katie. I said, I'd be delighted to meet Katie. And he said, this was like Tuesday evening. He said, about Thursday at lunch at noon at Three Fishermen Restaurant. It's right in downtown Halifax. I said, Thursday noon. Good. Okay. Great. See you then. Thursday noon. I'm in the, the, the waiting area and uh, no Jim Hayes. And uh, it's five after 12, no Jim Hayes. About seven or eight after 12, a woman who was also waiting in that uh, vestibule-like looked over at me. If you have tender ears, plug them. 
Sister Katie O'Toole. She looked over at me, and she walked over, and she said, you know the bastard isn't coming. <laughs> I said, you mean his eminence, Archbishop Hayes? She said, that's the bastard. He's not coming. I liked her already. Before the salad came, you know, we, I, we were at risk of getting thrown out of the restaurant. We were laughing so much. You know, people were looking at us. You know, the, now, what I said to the waitress, she's a nun. You can't throw her out, you know. <laughs> we, we did workshops together uh, a few times, maybe two or three times. She's just an incredible woman. She had been a missionary in South America. She'd been the general superior of the Sisters of Charity of Halifax. Great lady, great lady. Well, Katie got reassigned by her community to Boston with a group of Sisters of Charity of Halifax. And they worked the streets for uh, women and girls on the streets. Great, great work they do. And Katie got sick. She got sick with a type of lymphoma. I think it was T-cell. Anyway, it was a lymphoma you should die with, not from. She got admitted to Boston Women's Hospital, which is under the Harvard umbrella, Harvard Medical School umbrella. And she agreed to enter a, an oncology research process. Uh, and it was a double-blind study, so nobody knew this until after the, the circumstances. Katie got assigned to a cell of the study that would give her the maximum amount of chemotherapy that with her height, weight, and metabolism would push the envelope right to the edge of what she could tolerate. Even on the oncology ward, you know, there were peals of laughter going down the, because her visitors, I mean, she'd just entertain you. And this one particular day, and I know what happened because there were two nuns visiting her, and one of them gave me the story. The oncologist running the study came in to examine Katie and to give her her chemotherapy. He got caught up in the banter and the laughter and the, the, the ribaldness of this holy nun. They're really a funny lady. And he reached behind him to the trade brought in with him, and he picked up the wrong syringe. That syringe had been prepared for the patient in the next room, who was over 100 and, 100 and some pounds, uh, heavier than Sister Katie. So he administered the, uh, the medication to her, and only after he did so did he notice it was the wrong patient. And because she was so uh, much tinier than the next patient, uh, he gave her a fatal dose. And as soon as she metabolizes it, she's going to die. Half an hour, maybe. As you can imagine, the physician was completely distraught at the mistake he had made, as any of us would be, completely overwhelmed by the horror of what he had just done. Once he gathered himself, he explained to Sister Katie his mistake, then apologizing to her and with everything that he was. 
and explaining to her that she's going to die in 30, 40 minutes. And Katie did two things. And it always lifts me to remember Katie. The first thing that Katie did was this. Once she understood that her life was down to minutes, she said to the doctor, listen, it was a mistake. You didn't mean to do that. I forgive you for that. What it means to me is I'm going to see my Jesus sooner. Please, don't stop practicing medicine. Don't discontinue your research. You're doing really important work. Then she turned to the two nuns there, probably came for her having been the general superior. She said to the two sisters, I'm asking you now to not let our congregation sue this man or the hospital or the funding agency for this research. Just let it go. Come and pray with me. And Katie died within the half hour. I was unable to go to Halifax for her funeral. But Archbishop Hayes told me, he said, you know, Ray, in all the years I've been a priest, Katie's funeral was the saddest funeral that I've ever done because of the nature of the way that she died and who she was and who she was for countless people. He said, on the other side of that, it was the most joyful funeral mass I've ever done because of who she was and how much she was loved and how much good she did in her life. That, to me, is a forgiveness hero. And you have stories in your life, in your family history, of people who, you know, all those vets that have come back from horrendous stuff that they've experienced. You know, and how, how our country has failed to reach out to, to, to uh, provide PTSD treatment. They're good protocols. We don't have enough personnel to provide that. But I've met vet after vet after vet who chooses not to live with bitterness, who chooses not to live with that kind of, uh, that kind of a sense of how I've been betrayed. I, I admire that enormously. And I, and I think in my weakness, in my inadequacies, I want to clone some of that to help me get closer to the heart of Christ. Because that's what forgiveness is about, and that's what being close to the heart of Christ is about. That we've become Olympic-level forgivers. 70 times 7. Thank you uh, all for coming tonight. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to Father Eric for the invitation. And I'll see you all in June, except for you weenie snowbirds. <laughs>